Welcome back, everyone, to Talking It Out with Mike and Brian. And I'm very excited about today's episode because we have addiction specialist Zach Clark. Yes, that Zach Clark. You know him very well from season 17 of The Bachelorette, where he got engaged to season 17 Bachelorette and co-host of Clickbait, Tasha Adams. And today we're going to be talking all about overcoming adversity and addiction. What do you say, Mike? I'm so ready to talk to Zach. I know he's going to be so open and honest and just educated. So without further ado... Let's just get right into it. Welcome, Zach. What's going on, my man? Thank you so much for coming on the show. What's up, guys? I appreciate you uh, you having me. First time caller, long time listener, you know what I mean? First time caller, long time listener. We haven't heard that, so we appreciate it, man. Nice to meet you as well. You're all over my For You page, and I love it. I love you and your relationship with Tasha. Do my sister right, which I know you will do, man. I got you. Yeah, she's uh, she's a keeper for sure, so we're, we're having some fun doing the love deal. It. Love, love to love to hear that. But homie, if I can, you're you're a homie now. Like we talk once, we're homies, okay? Cool. Can we get right into the man, the myth, the legend that you are? I want to make sure I I want people to know the real you. I want people to know uh, not just the moments that you had with Tasha, but who you are before you went on the show, right? We know a little bit about your past. We know what you do now. We know that you're uh, recovered uh, from things that have done in the past. Can you? Can we just start there? Yeah, hundred percent. And I appreciate that. I feel like I come on a lot of these, and uh, I get a lot of softballs, but no one wants to get beyond that, you know. So I appreciate you saying you really want to get to know me because it's important, right? And uh, I've kind of lived two lives, you know. I grew up, I grew up right outside of Philly um, in South Jersey, and I would tell you that you know I was one of five kids and I have parents that are still married today and I never wanted for nothing. You know, like I had a beautiful upbringing, um, but I, I had a sheltered upbringing, right. In the sense that I grew up in this little like waspy town and, uh, you know, got a great education and, you know, played sports and, and, but like was sheltered, you know, and, and, and kind of like lived in this bubble. Um, and in high school, I will say that, it was like this days to confuse experience, right? Like we, we'd go out and we'd play some sports. And then on the weekends, we'd, you know, get the 12 pack of Natty Light and the, the flask of Captain Morgan and go out in the woods and belt out classic rock songs. And chase you, so you want some of your homies? Yeah, yeah. Sure, I get it, I get it. How sheltered were you? Can you like, like was it bedtime at like 8 p.m. in middle school? Like explain what shelter was in your, in your household. Uh, if I'm being straightforward, um, you know, there was no people of color. There was no black people in my high school, you know, like there was no Jewish people. It was very much like the definition of a waspy town, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I mean, that's what it was. So for me, I knew that I was always like missing something like culturally. I knew that I was always missing something in the world. And it was to, to the fault of no one um, other than maybe like, if I look back on my experience, maybe my teachers or, or or even like parents might be could have done a better job of saying like, it's a big world out there. But Mm. I grew up in a way where like you go to this high school, you go away for college, you come back to this town, you raise your family there and you ride off in the sunset. Like that was my, you know, vision. Cookie cutter. Yeah. And thank God that I like, I took the path I did, which was, you know, partied my ass off in high school, partied my ass off in college. And, you know, that continued into my early and mid twenties to the point where like, 
you know, 27 years old, uh, I'm running around, you know, uh, Camden, New Jersey, like in the middle of the street life, you know, smoking Mm -hmm. crack, shooting dope, like doing the whole thing, right? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So I want to know, like, when you were in it, like, did you ever feel like you were in danger with the drugs and everything that you were doing? Like, what was the worst? What were some of the worst things that you experienced when you were addicted? Yeah. I mean, it, it got dark. I definitely have some stories. Um, I knew I was in trouble. I, I, you know, I'm a diehard Philly sports fan and I had gone to an Eagles game on a Sunday. My wife, I had been married. My wife at the time who was kind of like hanging on by a thread was a school teacher. And I woke up on a Monday morning at this point I was hooked on, hooked on the junk. And, uh, she went to school and I woke up and I, I was dehydrated, but I also knew that I was out of drugs. Like I was out of opiates. And for those of you out there listening that I, you know, let's just put it this way. I wouldn't wish a detox from opiates on my worst enemy. Right. It's just the worst feeling in the world. So I woke up and I had no money and I was like, I got I got a cop. How am I going to cop? And you guys will like this one. So I call my homie, you got that mic. I call my homie and I say, dude, you got to take me to the hospital. I think something's going on. I make it up. He takes me to the hospital. I walk into the hospital. I, I complain about this pain in my side. They take me back. I research gallbladder. I tell the doctor my gallbladder hurts. He proceeds to give me the painkillers that I'm searching for. And I can, from that, I, I went through with the surgery. So I went forward. I got my gallbladder removed. Voluntarily. Voluntarily, just to get oh. high for a couple more days. You know, so that's like, that's that's the kind of moments you look back on and be like, man, that, you know, and not to mention the, the, the dozens of time and I'm not proud of it that I drank and drove. Right. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Wow. you know, the blackouts and the debauchery and all that stuff. I'll never forget. I was, I was, uh, it was 2007. So it was a year after I got out of college and at this point in my life, I'm partying hard, you know, Thursday through Sunday, kind of drinking, blacking out, doing Coke, whatever it is, hanging out with the boys, chasing girls. And, um, you know, I, uh, I had my car packed to go down the Jersey shore for the weekend, which is like, you know, it's a, whatever in Jersey, it's an hour away. Everyone, you know, Memorial day, you go party. And I had, I had this feeling of, this, uh, of like days come over me and I wasn't feeling good for like a week leading up to that. And I told my family and they, none of them took me seriously. Cause at this point I'm drinking so much, like you're just hung over, you're just hung over. And I, uh, I went out to a club in Philly that night and I fell over and the bouncer like picked me up and threw me out of the, of the bar. And the next morning I said, I gotta go see, to like an x-ray place, something's going on. And the lady comes back in the room and she's like, sir, you can't move, right? Like, and at this point, I'm like 24 years old and they found a huge growth on my brain. 
And within 24 hours, I'm in the hospital down at UPenn getting this brain tumor cut out of my head. Right. And so. What was going through your mind at that point? Well, like, well that's, that, that's the point here. This geez. is the craziest shit about, about addiction and alcoholism and like the obsession, which is like to a normal person lying in that hospital bed. I was never alone. There was so much love. People bringing me cheesesteaks, soft pretzels. I'm watching the Phillies game. Like I should have been like a pig and shit. Like I should have been the happiest guy in the world. <laughs> I lived, you know, I lived like it was, it was supposed to be this like heroic moment for Zach and lying there. I kid you not for 25 days, learning how to walk, talk, eat, you know, the whole thing, occupational therapy. All I could think about was getting out of that hospital bed and going back to drinking and drugging the way that I wanted to. And now, now I knew that I kind of had this like sob story, you know, or like this, this, this kind of like shield that no one could tell me what to do. And so I saw it as like this badge of honor to go do whatever the hell I wanted. And, and that's when I was really introduced to the opiates. And from there, like, it was like, what are the kids saying today? Like to the moon, like I just took off and it was no looking back. It's like you escaped the jaws of death and, now it was like a free for all basically after that. Mm-hmm. So you got addicted to the opiates. Is that uh, some of the pills that you were given for the healing process of the brain tumor that was taken out? Yeah. 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 I mean, the doctors had no other choice but to give them to me, right? Correct. Like, because yeah. I was in so much pain, but there was no education provided to me. Um, That's crazy, man. The number one killer in the military <laughs> is not war, it's actually a prescription uh, drug addiction. So I, that's just. Your story is a huge problem. It's, it's an epidemic in our country, the opioid uh, epidemic. That's um, right. Well, and that, and that was the thing. That was the thing. You know, like fast forwarding to this weekend, right? Like with with this fundraiser that you know we talked a little bit about some of the nonprofit work I'm doing to try and raise some money for people to you know go and and get some treatment, get some help. But that was one of the, the brightest moments of my, like this past weekend was, was one of the greatest weekends of my life. I can say that wholeheartedly just from start to finish. I had a woman drive down from Massachusetts that saw me on the show um, and we had been emailing or DMing back and forth. And she said to me, you pulled me out of a deep depression. You don't even know what your response meant to me. Drove three and a half hours just to give me a hug and, and take a photo, you know, with her dog. Yeah. Um, I had another woman the first day come up and, and hand me a $5,000 check because she just liked what we were doing, you know, and had seen a little bit about my story. So we're raising this money. We're building this community this weekend. And then like coming out of the weekend, it occurred to me that we just, we just hosted this event in the middle of New York city at this bougie ass hotel, the Equinox hotel in Hudson yards. And they let us, you talk about change and you talk about like growth for our, for our country and just the city of New York, like, they let us set up a table, a booth with our logo, which represents like drug addiction, alcoholism, something that is historically stigmatized. And for 48 straight hours, they allowed us to hang out in front of their hotel with the Pittsburgh Penguins staying there and the Memphis Grizzly and Tom Brady's out front on Friday. Like, and they said, do your thing. And to me, like them saying that showed me that we are starting to kind of like open our eyes to some of the problems that our nation are, is facing because I believe a lot of what we're seeing like at the core is, is drug addiction and mental illness, you know, like with, with, with a lot of the stuff going on in the world today. What does your wife even think? Like what was her involvement in everything with you, you know, as far as her, her, her being a support system for you at that time? 
I mean, what did she think when you were going through all that? Right. So, so I'm on the other side of this thing now and I happen to work in the field of addiction recovery. And one of the things about like family members, whether it was my wife, my parents, or even my best friends or whatever it was like, we're so good at lying and manipulating and hiding and stealing that they don't really know until like they know. And then like everybody kind of knows. So for her, I think there was a lot of sympathy around that episode where I got the gallbladder out. There was a lot of sympathy around the times when like I was hung over as hell and couldn't get out of bed or like, you know, I was quote unquote sick. Um, but really in my head, I knew I was detoxing. Uh, I will tell you that. So, the first time, so, so I got married in 2009 and in June of 2009 and my wife is, my ex-wife is a saint, you know, Tasha knows, like she, like she saved my life, right? Like I'm very grateful for her. There's no bad blood. We're not still really in contact, but she, she's still like friendly with my mom and sister and whatever like that. So we got married in 2009 by 2010 Thanksgiving. I'm in rehab for the first time. She, my mom and her were out cocktailing. One of my friends like ran up to them and outed me and basically told them what was going on. They came home. I got to pause. Go ahead. Did did your ex-wife know that you were uh, abusing drugs while y'all were dating? No. Okay. No, she had no idea. Wow. Okay. Like, like, I'll put it this way. Like, during our wedding, I was high. And like, on our honeymoon, I told myself that I was going to detox, which I actually did. But the second I landed back in Philly, like the text went out to the drug dealer, you know, so it was just I was living a lie. And she would say, like, where's all the money going? And, and it was just a new lie every every time. Um, but but back to. You know, rehab, like so my wife, the question was about my wife and, and, and like. So I went to rehab that first time and I got out of rehab, right? And in rehab, we got a little bit of an education. So for like the families out there listening, like the expectations that the patient's going to do work on themselves, but the family also needs to work on themselves as well. And my wife did that. So then two weeks after I got out of rehab the first time, I relapsed and she caught me red handed and she looked me square in the eye and she said, I love you, but it's over. And that was the last night I slept in that house. She called her old man. He drove down. And she was the first person in my life to really say like, Zach, the party's like over. And I didn't get sober the next day. Like I had to go out for eight months and really rip and run. And and I told you a little bit about what the end looked like, but she saved my life in the sense that like, I wasn't living under this false hope that she was going to stick around and like this relationship was going to work. I needed that boundary. And so like, and she did it with love. She just, she, she had to protect herself, which I appreciate. Definitely. So there's, there's boundaries. What were you going to say, Brian? No, no. I just want to know what the aftermath at that point in your life was. Like once, you know, you never slept in that house again. Like, did you fall into a depression? Like what was what was going on mentally there? Because, I mean, I, feel, I imagine that's got to be tough when, you're, when your wife tells you that. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, look, this thing can look, look a lot of different ways. I don't really think I ever suffered from the anxiety or the depression that a lot of people suffer from. Like I, I believe that I am just kind of like a straight down the middle, like drug addict and alcoholic. So my response to like that is I'm going to go harder and faster, mm. you know? And so I did for the next eight months. And uh, I mean, it got ugly, like to your point, like there was some, 
moments there where, you know, I was hanging out in places I shouldn't have been hanging out with, with people I probably shouldn't have been hanging out with, but you know, here I am. So. Did anyone ever know uh, that wasn't on drugs about your uh, habit, your drug habit? Well, people know I love the party. I still love the party. You know, oh, no, I ain't talking day. about that. Homie. I'm, talking about, <laughs> I'm talking about like when you were on drugs, did people around you in your circles know that you were on drugs, but they weren't on drugs? Like, did you ever com- com- did you ever confide in anyone is what I'm asking? I think there, there was a there was a small handful of people that How, okay. knew, knew because I was doing drugs with them. But outside of that, it was kind of my secret, you know? Okay, so. And... What I'm asking, what I'm trying to get to is if someone out there has someone in their life that is abusing drugs and alcohol, how do they like still maintain your trust, like not snitching on you, but then also try to help you? Well, I think for me, what I've learned over the years is there's a couple ways I answer that question, which is one, it's really hard as a friend or a family member to support someone because there's emotions involved. Right. And when you're that emotionally close to someone, it's hard to like not believe them. And that's why it's smart to get a professional involved. Right. Like, and I don't see that as snitching. I see that as trying to save someone's life. Right. Like I I do as well. Uh, I, I I know I've known people in the military military has a, a, uh, some people in the military have an issue with this and our job is to obviously we care and love that person and try to get professional help for them. And they have been able to finagle out of it. And so then that, then they lose that relationship with that person. And it almost feels as if they can, they don't come back to you no more. So I've, I've felt if they don't come back to me no more, then who else will they go to? Does that make sense? And so I was just wondering, how do you do it? Do it the right way. So I guess your right way is saying, just seek professional, go to a professional. Well, I think too, like it just goes back to a lot of things in the world, right? Like I, I heard my mom saying she loves me. I heard my dad saying she loves me. My response wasn't to acknowledge that, but deep down I felt the love, right? And so for anyone that has someone they love that's struggling, whether it's with drug addiction or something else, you know, like really letting them know that you love them is is, is one of the best things you can do. Is it's just yeah. like because here's the thing, like here's the thing I kind of always tell people, right? Like with heart disease or cancer, right? You go to the doctor and they give you like you're gonna go do chemo, you're gonna go do radiation, and the patient says, "Okay, great, like I, I'm gonna do all these things, so I'm gonna say, I, I, I want to live." Right? With this thing, it's a killer just as much as, as, as those other diseases. But if I go to a doctor and the doctor says, all right, I want you to go to these support groups. I want you to see this therapist. I want you to see this psychiatrist. I want you to be enrolled in this outpatient program. A lot of times the patient will turn back and say like, well, I don't know about the support group and I'm too busy for the therapist. We start to negotiate with the, with the treatment plan. Mm -hmm. And that's, what's so hard about this whole thing. Mm, Gotcha. Obviously you went through, you know, everything in, in rehab and whatnot, like, through your through everything that you learned in rehab, like in retrospect, what were you looking for in the drugs and the alcohol? Like, was that just something that everybody did when you were growing up and you just kind of like joined in or was it, were you trying to gain some sort of an outlet? Like, what would you say to that? 
Oh man. I, you know, I definitely was trying to fill like a hole in my soul, you know? Um, and I don't know to this day exactly what that was. Mm. I know, I know for me and like, even to this day when I, like one of the core traits of someone who struggles with drug addiction or alcoholism is that like, we're, like for me, I'm selfish and I'm self-centered, right? Like I think about myself and I get high and I keep thinking about myself and I don't care about any other people. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important when you come out on the other end of this thing to really be of service and think of other people and try to give back. Um, because yeah. it, you're not like, if you're thinking about other human beings, you can't possibly be thinking about yourself. And Love so for me, you know, for me, like in rehab and like, it's kind of a baffling one because I didn't, like I said, like at the outset, like I didn't want for anything. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I was, I don't have the trauma, you know, I don't have the the molestation. I don't have that stuff from my upbringing, but that's good for people here. Is, you know, like, yeah, I mean, it's gonna, it can happen to anybody. Yeah. That's, that's no matter, no matter what your background is. Super good for people to hear. Cause I think people always associate uh, someone who's addicted to drugs and or alcohol of like having the worst upbringing whatsoever when we're living proof that that's not the case. What has helped you stay clean? Because we just lost DMX, right? He battled yeah. with a lot of uh, drug and alcohol, uh, rest in peace. And I, what has helped Zach, you know, what has helped you and what yeah. will continue to help you stay clean? Yeah. Yeah. That DMX thing rocked me, you know, because it just reminded me of so many of, of, stories of people that I've met just like him that are so talented and you know, like at my high school locker room, like DMX fueled that shit for four years, you know, oh, like yeah. they, it was like, like they can't come on, you know, like, yeah. and so, uh, for me, like, I like to think I'm the smartest guy in the room. Right. But when it came to this thing, I really had to humble myself and, and understand that I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And I had to listen to those that had, quite frankly, they come before me and then had recovered and had, you know, uh, a sense of how this thing works. And so now, almost uh, a decade later, you know, God willing, I'll celebrate, I'll celebrate, God willing, I'll celebrate 10 in, in August, you know, like I do a lot of the same shit I did when I first got out of rehab, you know, like I have my support groups and my networks that I lean on. Um, you know, I'm still engaged in, in therapy and, and I'm not ashamed of that. Um, Oops, I work out, I, I work out a ton, you know, like that's a big part of my recovery and I found a purpose, you know, and for me, my purpose was, I ended up working in this field and growing a business that, that helps people for the next guy. It could be playing music, but you know, it just, it opened, like it opened my eyes to, um, a world that I didn't even know I existed. Like if you would have told me that Zach Clark, like this, you know, little kid from, from South Jersey's in New York city, like doing what he's doing, I would have said, you're crazy, you know? And, uh, and so on the other side of that, I end up going to treatment, um, for four and a half months. This is the second time that I've been in rehab and, uh, like I had to get punched in the face in many ways, but like, like first I had to get punched in the face by my addiction and then like, kind of like learn to love myself again. And then what happened for me is I was kind of, you know, injected into this recovery community up in New York city, which New York city is a melting pot. Right. So here I am showing up with like five months sober 
from this little town in, in South Jersey into the bright lights in New York city. I'm like, what the hell happened in my life? And, uh, you know, like when I was in rehab, it was something I kind of like, I started to learn to pray and like, I was looking for a sign and spirituality and like my counselor at the time made a couple recommendations as to where I could go after rehab. You know, you kind of like, you go to rehab and then you go into like supported living environments. He said, why not New York? And I kind of said like, screw it. Yeah, let's do it. And, yeah. uh, how were you at the time? I never looked back. How I was 27. Okay. So 27. 27 at the time. Okay. And Zach, I just want to take it back. So you were, would you say you were introduced to drugs and alcohol in high school? Yeah, it was, I would say probably like sixth grade, you know, sixth at a grade. Christmas, par Christmas party, a couple older guys like threw me a beer and I drank it and, you know. Gotcha. And when did you like along your journey? Because obviously that was like in middle school. And then you talked about being 27. Like at what point did you feel like, okay, I definitely have an issue? It's funny you ask, Brian, because I, I kind of, everyone's got a different experience, right? Kind of yeah. like their moment of clarity. And, uh, you know, for me, I don't think I knew. I mean, there's a crazy story behind like my last couple hours of, of, of drinking and drugging to where like my dad kind of like came down to this bank where I was trying to cash one of his checks. And, you know, what happened was he got this phone call on a Saturday morning from the bank teller basically saying like, you gotta get, you gotta get down here. Like your son's in trouble. He's trying to cash one of your banks, one of your checks. He happened to be in his office. He happened to answer the phone from an unknown caller. Right. Mm -hmm. He happened to be 10 minutes away. There was missing person reports like all over the place. And he bolted down there. And for me, like that moment that you're asking about is when he walked into that bank and kind of put his arm on my arm. He's like, son, we're going home. I felt something in that moment that I like to this day. I just got goosebumps. Right. I can't describe it. Something left me. And that's when I knew like, all right, this life, I'm done with this life. And he walked me out and the two guys that I was running around, two drug dealers were sitting outside the bank and I kind of like waved to them. They knew, they saw it, you know? And that was the beginning of like, you know, my second, my second one, yeah. Yeah. Wow, I love that. Th th thank you for that. So the bank teller story, it's 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 my greatest story in life. And so, <laughs> what what happened was, you know, I go, I get sober, I start this whole new life in New York City. I don't really think about that moment. I mean, I talk about it a lot because it was my like moment of clarity. But then I end up on this crazy show, right, The Bachelorette, and disconnected from the world and I started to reflect on like how I got to this moment right that's one of the things I'm most grateful for like really that in like looking inward in addition to falling in love and doing all that stuff like I really got to think about my life and uh when I got out I I made a mission to go find the bank teller and I went down to the PNC bank where she had been working Rhonda Jackson is her name if you go to my Instagram you can see a post about it but um I walked in that bank. She was still there. I surprised her. I brought her flowers. We had, she's like, oh my God, Zach, I remember calling your dad. Like she remembered oh, it. Wow. And uh, it was her last week on the job. Wow. She was leaving. Just in you know, time. like, yeah, wow. it was nuts. It was nuts. I love that, bro. That's oh insane. my God. Yeah. This is cool. I'm getting like, I really she have. She like helped, helped save you me. in a sense, man. That's, that's incredible, man. You just talked about how people get out of depression. One is their support group. I can't emphasize enough how important that is. So I'm glad you said that. Two, uh, you mentioned working out. 
you know, working out is one of the most underutilized antidepressants. And then three, it's an outlet. Yeah. And then three, you have purpose. Like you literally just hit on one, two and three without even knowing it, bro. I love that you said that. And I uh, would love to be there with you uh, at your 10 year celebration because you're definitely going to make it, man. So almost 10 years, Zach, again, congratulations on that. It's a hell of a feat. Um, Thank you. I want to know what the social life is like now. Um, Does it bother you being around people who are drinking and, you know, maybe doing some type of uh, extracurricular activity on drugs or anything like that? Like, how do you handle those situations when you're out now? Uh, I don't, I enjoy it. You know, like I, I, it's tough because my best friend in life up here, uh, a guy by the name of Justin, he hates it. Like he hates being around drunk people. For me, I don't, I don't mind it. You know, like I still go on the bachelor parties. I still do the fantasy football trips. I'll still, you know, go out to a club. We have like the night calls for that. Um, cause I love people and I, and I love, yeah. I love life, you know? So one of my big passions in addition to like helping people recover is also recognizing the fact that this life is not a punishment and I get to do some of the mm. coolest shit mm. out there, you know, and, and feel good doing it. Yeah, absolutely. This and does it help punishment? And does it help being around, you know, the people that you do party with? You said you like to party. I mean, obviously they know what you've been through. You know, we know that some people have in their group an enabler who you know trying to shove a drink or a shot down their mouth and you know i'm sure that your close circle knows about that and is isn't isn't really doing that when you're out in public and they basically just let you be is that the case yeah you know what i learned about that dude the one that's trying to get you to drink they most yeah. likely have a problem because mm. they're looking for someone to join in on their life yeah. on their like co- co-sign their bullshit you know yep. what i mean yeah that's facts. That's facts. <laughs> absolutely one time, one time uh, I got a shout out my roommate, Connor. We had uh, like a little get together at our apartment and this one girl was trying to get Connor to drink and Connor's extremely big on his fitness and body. And he, he kept saying, no, no, no. And then she said, well, why the hell did you move to downtown Austin if you want to drink? And like, I just kicked her out. Kicked it's her like out a requisite house. in downtown yeah, Austin? Like, who the hell says that? So I, I like that you said that, Zach. They, they are the ones that probably have the issue right there. Um, I have to ask you, because I'm a mentor with Big Brothers Big Sisters. What would you say to the kids out there that are, you know, that don't have that that strength yet, I would say, for themselves and are, you know, they're learning about this stuff. They're going to sixth grade, right, They're in, or higher. Uh, you know, what do you say to them? Yeah, I can't. I can't help but recognize that I've been doing this work professionally now for like eight, nine years. And the the calls that we're getting, the kids are getting younger and younger and. I kind of say it like, like to, to answer that question, I'm going to talk about what I tell my friends right now who are starting to have kids and bring people up in this world, which is that people want to smoke pot, like, and their brains are fully developed. And rather than go have a couple martinis, they want to smoke some butt on a Friday night and they're 29, 32, 38 years old and they don't have a pot, like go for it. Right. Like I don't have any opinion on that shit, but like this whole legalization that's happening with marijuana and, you know, it's becoming more and more socially accepted. And they're not, these kids are not smoking the same weed that we smoked or I smoked growing up. Like they're these vapes and these pens. So what we're seeing at 12, 13, 14 years old, these kids are getting their hands on this shit and they're taking one hit and the stuff's so strong that they're, 
they're frying their brain literally with one hit of the shit and they're ending up in rehab in like a weed induced psychosis. So for me, like what I try to educate the adolescents on is like, just be careful, be mindful, try to understand like what you're getting yourself into. Don't do things that you're getting from places you don't know. Inevitably people are going to experiment with drugs, right? They're going to, I mean, it's just a sad fact of our, of our world, but like, trying to educate them about the dangers of some of the stuff that's out there. I mean, this, these weed pen, like this, it's dangerous. Yeah, you know, it's going to be dangerous. Yeah. yeah. I always say just uh, try to be your own little leader. You can be a leader yourself. You know, that's just something I always try to say. I think, I think, I think too, like for me, Mike, just to follow up, like. Yeah, appreciate it. One of the things, like, cause you asked earlier, or maybe it was Brian about like, why I drank and drugged. And the, the one thing I do remember about like my adolescence and growing up is I always formulated my answers to suit what I thought you wanted to hear. Yes. So if I knew Mike was into basketball, like I would answer my question or try to make myself out to be some kind of like basketball guy. And I knew Brian was into the opera. Like I'm going to make my, you know, and so You're like a people pleaser. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so for like the adolescents and the kids growing up, like be, be yourself, man. Yes. Be, do, like do, do you. Yes. Facts. Say it loud. Let the people in the back hear you, man. How, you know, a lot of people when they are uh, like a lot of musicians, when they get off of uh, drugs and or alcohol, they have a hard time when it comes to doing their art for us. You know, we were on the bachelor, right? When you got off of uh, doing drugs and alcohol, how was it for you dating? Was it you no know, biggie because you love people or did your game go down? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I ever had games, to be honest. <laughs> hey, Stop lying. We saw, we saw the show. The Stop lying. <laughs> Yo, I just laid in the cut until I was in, like, until it came to me. <laughs> oh, man. I had the patience, I'll tell you that. No, so. It's a great question. And it's one that like in working with guys getting sober, men and women get getting sober, like it's all, they always want to talk about the, right. Yeah, and like yeah. for me, I'm kind of screwed out the gate. Cause I sit down on a date and it's like, what do you do for work? Well, I work in this. And then like the waiter comes and like, I order a club soda, like, all right, what's going on here. So I kind of hit them. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm screwed. Um, but like what I came to realize, and again, like this pertains not just to drinking, but if this person sitting across from me is going to judge me because I don't drink, then I'm out anyway. It's Cause I don't want to be with some, it's yeah. Nice. Like, so, so if someone's going to be that judgmental, which we see all the time in this world, like peace, I'm, I'm on to the next one. Yeah. On to the next one. Hey, Tell me, man, this. you were, uh, you're obviously now engaged. Um, how, how did Tasha when you first told her about everything you're telling us now, I mean, how did she take everything? Yeah. So I took, you know, uh, it was kind of like our first one-on-one and it was the night portion of the date. And like, there was somewhat of a build up to that moment. And I just remember kind of, you know, fielding some questions from the other guys and maybe some producers just about like exactly that, like the fear. Um, and I think like people were expecting me to respond in a way that like, I'm really scared. I'm really nervous. Like, I don't know how this is going to go, but like, you were super Honestly, comfortable, I imagine. Yeah, because that's because of the rehab, like I, right? I like myself. I mean, that's yeah. just the truth. Like, I like myself. So, like, 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 fuck. <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm, you know, that's it. Yeah, you love yourself. You know who you are. You know who's not for you and who's for you. As simple as that. I, I mean, love that. Like, how do you not drink on the show? How, what was around being so drunk? Guys? I was like, 
I mean, maybe some dudes got drunk, but I, I met a lot of really cool guys out there, like yeah, good men, yeah. you know? I, I don't know. No, you do know. It's as, it's as simple as that, bro. Like the answer could be simple and to the point and succinct. You love yourself. You know who you are. You know who's for you and who's not for you. So it truly can be that simple. I think that, quite honestly, we make it harder at times. It's like, hey, I don't want to drink. It's that simple, bro. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. I don't want to. I don't want to do this. Or I do want to do this. Uh, I love it. And huge thanks to Zach for coming on. And to all of our listeners, this is part one of a very important conversation that we just had with Zach. So make sure to tune in next week for part two as we continue the conversation. So make sure you guys listen in next week uh, for part two uh, as we go and dive deeper with Zach. And as you always know, we'd love to hear your opinions, your stories, and your insight. So please don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, message us on social at TalkingOutBN. That's TalkingOutB as a bachelor in his nation on IG, Facebook, and Twitter. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, The Wondery app, or wherever you listen to right now, baby. And don't forget... Don't DM me no more unless you subscribe to the pod. Oh, no.